Special thanks to our promotional partners at the American Philatelic Society. The APS is the largest stamp collecting organization in the world, supporting collectors of any level worldwide. For more information about membership and APS services, visit stamps.org. I'm Charles Epting from H.R. Harmer in New York City. And I'm Michael Cortese of Noble Spirit in Pittsfield, New Hampshire. And this is Conversations with Philatelists. Now, the gentleman we're speaking to today mm-hmm. may look familiar to people who watched our Virtual Stamp X preview episode yep. a couple of weeks ago. Or to people who watched the PTS Awards. This is somebody we've spoken to several times mm-hmm. who has not gotten a full episode of his own, even though he is as deserving as anyone that we've spoken to. Oh, absolutely. We're going to be talking to Chris King today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm um, looking forward to that one. Me too. Chris has uh, an exceptional resume. He has signed the role of Distinguished Philatelists, which is the highest philatelic honor. Uh, he's been the president of the Royal Philatelic Society, which is another of the highest honors. Lichtenstein Award from the Collectors Club of New York. Um, Chris is just um, as accomplished as they come, uh, and you would never know it from speaking to him because he is also as down-to-earth and friendly and uh, just just a, uh, an absolutely lovely man who uh, I always look forward to seeing him when I, when I travel over in Europe. Mm-hmm. And with that having been impossible for a year now uh i'm really looking forward to, to getting a chance to catch up with chris i think this is uh i think this is going to be a really fun episode yeah this is our third time talking to him and i still haven't met him in person and i'm looking forward to uh it's gonna be it, so cool when we can go to stamp shows again and yeah. you'll know we'll, we'll both know all these people who we mm-hmm. uh didn't know beforehand so yeah. uh without further ado what do you say we bring chris on yeah absolutely here we go hi how are you doing here you go Good. I thought I'd move away from my white covered doors. <laughs> I I love this background. This is, I think, the most impressive background that we've uh, yeah. had. Yeah. Okay, it's the non-philatelic books. It's like masterpiece theater with the uh, with the big armchair too. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just figured that people who fed up with my front my, my two doors. The reason I don't open the doors there's books behind those doors <laughs> normally in my study. But it just looks a wreck, you know, because I've got this, this philatelic stuff on one set of shelves and on the other set of shelves. I, I collect cartoon books, political mm-hmm. cartoons, and that's in the other one. And I thought, no. <laughs> it, just, <laughs> it, just, it just looks such a, um, such a mess. Chris, to, to kick things off, can you sort of walk us through we, – you know, we, we've spoken to you about Virtual Stamp X, and, and I'm sure a lot of people – uh, know about you in the hobby, but can you sort of walk us through uh, how you got to, to where you are today, your, your involvement with the Royal Philatelic Society, your collecting interests? What What's sort of the, the elevator pitch uh, version of your uh, CV? Okay. I started collecting as a child, and I started collecting as a child because I was a very unwell child. I, I couldn't, um, you know, I, I wasn't, I didn't have much of an outdoors life. I didn't play sports. I was really quite ill. So the choice was stamp collecting or reading, so I did both. <laughs> and, um, and that's really been the story of my life. I, I, I never got better until I was a young teenager. Um, and so stamps have always been part of my life. I've always been a collector with the exception of a few years. So uh, fast forward, I got married, I started collecting again, 
I got a job. It was a significant. It was a busy job. I, I got involved in local government. It was busy. I've always had two jobs. Sometimes, sometimes three. Um, I started a business from scratch. We were busy, and really, all this time I'm collecting, and I belong to one club. I, I joined the Scandinavian Philatelic Society, and I'm legendary in the Scandinavian Philatelic Society, but never going to a meeting. <laughs> So, so from the 80s right through the 2000s, no, probably, yeah, the early 80s right through the 2000s, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a secret collector. I'm like all those millions out there who don't belong to a club, or if they do, they don't go. Um, they buy in fairs and bourses and in auctions. You know, um, you, you, you buy, we had a lot of weekend fairs in, 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 in the UK then. I'd go there and I'd buy stuff. So I've always been buying and I've always been collecting. There's a, there's a slight wrinkle to that, but it doesn't really matter. So in 2000, I'm 52 years old. I'm looking to retire when I'm 60. And I, I, I want to do this properly. So I managed to wangle our way into um, an exhibition uh, London 2000, as in, in, in open philately or open class, as it was called then, because there was no pre-qualification. So I put this exhibit in, got a large Vermeer, um, and then some people said, well, that's interesting, Chris, will you come and talk to the club? <laughs> <laughs> so I did. And then people said, do you want to join the Royal Philatelic Society? And I said, well, you know, I don't think I want to, really, because I, I, I don't think this is for me. Um, that sounds really a bit uh, la-di-da or hoity-toity, and I'm not really that at all, you know. And, I, and, I, and that was one of the biggest mistakes in my life, not getting involved in the Royal earlier. So all of a sudden, I'm involved in organised philately. Um, I'm, 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 I'm a member of the Royal. I get involved in London 2010. I run the IT stuff. And all of a sudden, I've got a new career. <laughs> So I finally did retire um, just before, not long before I became president of the Royal. I mean, that's crazy. You know, I joined the Royal in 2005. I'm president, I think, in eight years. <laughs> and and I, it, it's just been like that from, from 2000 onwards. It's been like this express elevator. And, um, yeah, and... Uh, well, you, that, that's my that's my short story. Um, <laughs> because of an and, and I, I love it. I really love it. I, and I wish I'd got involved with organised philately before. And I wish, especially, I got involved in the royal because the royal is everything that people don't think it is. Mm -hmm. You know. Anyway, so can you talk a bit ab about that? About the royal being everything that people don't think it is. About what it what it did for you and, and, and what it's currently doing for the people involved? Well, <laughs> what it did for me was it kind of opened my eyes to, um, to genuine and real expertise. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, most of the members of the Royal really know a lot about something. Somebody know, uh, some few know a lot about everything. But, but everybody is a complete enthusiast and it is... It's warm, it's sociable, it's entertaining, it's constantly changing, and it's very supportive. Um, and it, it really did make me feel at home. Except one day, 
I've I just been elected uh, junior vice president of the society, so I don't know when that is. It's I haven't been a member for very long, and I walked down into the members' room, and there was this voice saying, "Where the hell did he come from?" <laughs> uh, but, but apart from that, uh, and, uh, and I get on very well with this gentleman now. So, apart from that, it is really a very supportive and warm environment. And if you want to know something, there's somebody in the royal who knows it, mm-hmm. and 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 that is such a good feeling. Um, and it's, it's, I think it's getting away from its sort of reputation of 30 years ago and earlier. Um, and it is really, it is just everything, it is everything that I thought it was not. Uh, yeah, I love it. Chris, something I think is interesting is that you are one half of a uh, philatelic power couple. You're one of the few couples who are both uh, uh, very successful exhibitors and, and lecturers and and. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it's like to have your uh, your, your spouse. You know, a lot of for a lot of collectors, I think um, this idea of their spouse being uh, at all involved, let alone uh, unbelievably successful in their own right, is is sort of a pipe dream. But but for you, it's a reality. Can you talk a little bit about about that? Yeah, Beata wasn't a Beata was not a collector when we met. And uh, she's got her own story, which she'll have to ask. But she became a collector, and it's had a it's had a number of effects. I mean, the, the key, the first of which is that we can we, we can work together. We we don't collect the same stuff, but what we do is, you know, I'll, I'll write something or sort something or have a question about something, and I can say to Peter, "What do you think about this?" Or, and and you get an honest answer, and that that in that supports in the family is really, really, really important. And I think, you know, relationship counselling, I think it's improved our relationship. (laughs) Um, But we often say that um, I think a lot of partners in families don't necessarily know what it is their their husbands, usually husbands, but sometimes wives are up to. Mm. And, And that's because we kind of keep our hobby, and I wish I could find a better word, we kind of keep our hobby to ourselves. I think philately grows walls, you know, we are we are ourselves, and, and uh, so having beer to collect has made that very different at home, and I think of a very different home philatelic environment from quite a lot of families. So my advice to guys is, for God's sake, try and get your wife, your partner, your significant other involved. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is it's really made a big dent in the pocketbook. <laughs> <laughs> because when your wife sees something in a catalogue and she says, we've got to have that. <laughs> you know, and I mean, she once dispatched me to Copenhagen to an auction and she, with, with, the, with, with the advice that we've got to have that. <laughs> And at the time, I bought the most expensive postcard that's ever been sold in Denmark, so I could actually deal with the instruction. So I brought it home to her, and she she loves it. She still got it. But so, um, yeah. What 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 it? And of course, when we travel together, you know, it gives us. I know some couples they they, they travel. He goes to the stamp show and she goes to the market or out on the sightseeing or whatever. Well, we, we go to the we, we go to the event. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but there are more couples who collect than you think, you know. Um, we have this kind of fantasy society, Beatrice and I, which is called the Double Geneva Society. And it's basically a book and a pin. And we had some pins made with the Double Geneva on. And whenever we find a collecting couple, we get them to sign their names in the book. <laughs> and we give them a Double Geneva pin. So the Double Geneva Club is bigger than you think. Um, and there are, there, are, there are quite a lot of collectors out there. Um, you know, the, the, the members of the Double Geneva Club say, well, what do we do? I said, we do nothing. When we meet, we go out for dinner. <laughs> or, uh, you know, anyway. But it is fun, and there are more. In fact, this morning, being serious, uh, Beatrice and I were listing women collectors, and there are a lot of women collectors. And I think, actually, there's a growing number of women collectors. So perhaps in 50 years' time, our successors will be saying to the women you're interviewing, um, so when did your husband get involved in philately? <laughs> and if that ever happens to us, we know we're winning because we really do, gentlemen, have a very, very long way to go. Hmm. So we can start by trying to involve our wives, our partners, and our significant others in our glorious enterprise. And uh, that's my recommendation. So uh, you said you, the two of you collect different things, but do you ever work on an exhibit or, or, or a piece together? <laughs> yeah, we got one. <laughs> we've got one exhibit which is um, uh, postal censorship during the Second World War on mail to Denmark and it is the most neglected piece of work that we've got because <laughs> we kind of prioritise uh, and here this is uh, this is unfair we kind of priori prioritise our stuff mm -hmm. I mean Beat has, been, Beat has been working on a couple of articles for a German magazine for uh, Der Philatelie um, on the German refugees in Denmark during the Second World War. And that's taken a lot of her time for the last six weeks. Hmm. And I've been working on ephemera from philatelic exhibitions through the ages. And um, that's a relatively new subject, although there's, there are a couple of wonderful books. Um, and so it's taken all of our time up, and we're supposed to be putting in our um, Second World War censorship exhibit, I think, in Japan. And Peter said, it's not going to be ready, and I don't know what we're going to do about that. I mean, maybe Japan won't happen, and that will solve the problem. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, we, we have this one exhibit together, and we, we, we do occasionally look at a piece and say, that belongs. Mm. So we've probably got more stuff in a box which isn't in the exhibit and should be than the stuff that's in the exhibit. Yeah. So, <laughs> this yeah. one is a work in progress. Mm -hmm. so. Almost like a, uh, you could just bring the box, have it be a create your own exhibit or uh, for the you people know, looking. <laughs> the very early exhibitions, um, you, you'd, you'd put your pages up and in the bin room mm -hmm. would be your albums in a bin, a box. <laughs> And that would be part of the judging issue. They'd, they'd look at your albums as well. <laughs> and maybe they could look at our junk box. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so if I could talk a little bit about, um, you said you became a little more involved with the Royal in 2010. Uh, in, in 2010 also, you, you co-founded the Global Philatelic Library. Yeah, it was, that's a, 
Yes, I did. Um, but I've got to tell you, like many other things, mm-hmm. a lot of other people have done all the work. <laughs> um, I mean, what really happened was in maybe four or five years before Frank Walton mm-hmm. at a Royal Council meeting had said, and I didn't know because I was not a member, um, that we ought to start a catalogue, um, of a digital catalogue of everything mm-hmm. and make it accessible. Well, I had the same idea. Um, and when I rang Frank to say, I've had a good idea, he said, oh, I've had that idea already. <laughs> um, and we, and, and we just had one of those conversations where, you, you know, you find two people who've got a like mind mm-hmm. and you've got an idea and you really think it's going to run, it's going to fly. And, um, and we had that conversation. And Alan Holyoke at the time um, was going to go to the Smithsonian and um, talk about this idea on behalf of us. Um, which he did, um, but you know it's the Smithsonian. The Smithsonian takes time, mm-hmm. and um, Alan took the paper that I'd written that Frank had approved, and we all agreed on to the Smithsonian. So we were in Washington. No, we're not. We were in New York uh, for some reason, and we took the train. I, I made an appointment to see the librarian staff because they're the keys to this. You know, a lot of people don't know the structure of the Smithsonian. It's a complicated organization, but the vice president is the boss. Um, but the, the library covers all of the institutions. So there's one library institution which covers every single museum element. So the, 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 the uh, postal museum is only part of it. So I made an appointment to go and see some of the senior librarians at the central Smithsonian. And Beatrice and I went down there on the, what's the name of that train, Arcella or something? The Arcella. The Arcella, yeah, one of the world's worst train experiences. (laughs) Yeah. And I thought, you know, it's a train, we can go down in the morning, we can come back at night. And what we did, um, so we went down in the morning, that was okay, except I was wearing light-coloured trousers and the seats were filthy and... (laughs) You know, so anyway, there I am. And we go to see a a group of really very sharp uh, people, um, mostly women, um, at the Smithsonian. And they made us really welcome, and we we explained the idea. And it kind of took off. That actually was the key to getting the Smithsonian on board. So, yeah, I mean, like many things in life, I've done the talking and a lot of other people have sometimes, well, a lot of other people often have done the work. And um, so we we went down there, the Smithsonian was on board, the APRL was on board, which I didn't do. Um, and then Frank ran with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of wrote the beginning of this. Um, and in fact, what it really needs is it needs an infusion of cash to um, to make it more attractively useful to the users. It is a phenomenal resource. I use mm-hmm. it not every day, but two or three times a week. But if you want to know about philatelic literature, what is there on a particular subject, the Global Philatelic Library is the go-to place. Yeah. And then with the, um, with the British Library, with the Crawford Library, um, I found the funding for um, the Crawford. Well, what had happened was David Beach 
very um, far-sightedly had had the Crawford Library um, put on, on on microfilm microfiche when they did the restoration. So the, the Crawford Library was on these microfiches in storage, microfilms, in fact, in cans, in storage. And David was telling me this, and we found them. I found the money. We found the money uh, to have those things digitized, and then turned into readable PDFs, um, OCR the PDFs so that they're searchable. Yeah. And now, as part of the part of the Global Philatelic Library, you've got access to Lord Crawford's library, <laughs> and Lord Crawford's library included Tiffany's library which was probably the greatest American philatelic library ever created. But it also included some of Friedel's library from Germany and Frankel's library from Germany. And you can pull up the pages, or you can put the references to these, and you can also pull up the PDFs. I mean, these, these microfilms were done in the 70s and 80s, and they're black and white. Mm. But they are, it's unbelievable to be able to pull up what Crawford collected and see it on your own screen at home. So I, I think this is a phenomenal uh, resource for philatelists. Um, and and it, it is constantly a bother as to how to fund it because the Royal has done some of the funding. And then volunteers, as ever, have done a lot of the work. Mm. Um, but, yeah, th th this thing wouldn't exist, I think, without me, but it most certainly wouldn't exist without the technical expertise of people like Steve Jarvis and Frank Walton and many, many others and without the support of the librarians around the world including Nicola Davis, our own uh, librarian and head of collections at the Royal. So it really is, it's a, it's a joint enterprise, but uh, I did give it a shot at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. It, it is really um, a tremendous, like you said, tremendous resource. Yeah, long way to go. Yeah. yeah. What, uh, what is, if I can ask, what's next for it? What are you, what is you working I, I on or what are they I'm, working on? I'm, I'm not on the board. You'd have to ask Frank, but I know they're looking at um, putting, putting a new skin on it and making it simpler to use. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a board meeting, I believe, sometime in the next weeks. Um, and I'm sure they're going to be talking about how they're going to pay for what. Um, and, and, you know, in philatelic terms, uh, you can, I mean, you, you you can sell a fancy cover for a lot more money than it's going to take to fix the global philatelic library. <laughs> so, um, any, any volunteers out there, please let me know, mm -hmm. uh, and I'll pass it on to some to the appropriate people. Um, it, it it really it needs to be made more user friendly. Is its key um, issue, and and that requires resources and and actually professional. Uh, IT support. Mm -hmm. you know, we, we've, we, it's been taken a very long way, um, but there's there's much more there's much more mileage in in the project yet. It's a really good project. Chris, there's a lot of places geographically around the world that uh, I wouldn't have heard of without philately, and I think that Schleswig <laughs> is. <laughs> exactly yeah. one of those sorts of places that I'm sure a lot of people are only familiar with because of, of uh, this wonderful hobby. Could you explain <laughs> uh, what it is that got you interested in, in collecting uh, Schleswig and, and maybe give sort of a, a, a in a nutshell, the, um, the, the uh, geopolitical history of, because this is a, 
it, it, it's a place that is um, not huge geographically and, and maybe not on everyone's radar, but has a lot of tumultuous uh, history, I would say. So what is yeah. it about this, this little piece of land that, that interested you so much? First off, this thing about being married to somebody and she being interested in philately. My wife's Danish, and that is, uh, and Sleswig was historically Danish. Um, Holstein, historically German, but that's a different question. Um, I kind of got completely fed up with collecting GB machins <laughs> and new issues and stuff like that. So I was looking around for something different to do, and I, I hit on the idea of collecting dead countries. And this is a good while before 1989, when places like Estonia and Lithuania and Latvia and so on reappeared. And one of the things I found were these um, post-First World War plebiscites like Carinthia, uh, Eastern Silesia, uh, and, and Slesvig, and, and others. There were, there were more than people think. And I got very, very interested in these plebiscites uh, because, I mean, borders are always good for philately. It's, it's a sad, sad, sad it's truth. It's a sad truth, but um, philately thrives on wars and borders, at least postal <laughs> history does, because um, then, then you get overprints and all sorts of stuff. So... Uh, also, we, 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 we used to drive to Denmark, and in fact, we, we may even do that after the coronavirus when we're allowed out again. Um, and we used to drive through Slesvig. So here I am. I found this plebiscite thing. I found this. I know what the land looks like. So I got interested in the history because Beatrice and I also share a passion for history. And uh, so we got into the history of this place, and then we discover the war, you know, the, well, the whole history, and primarily the Three-Year War, it's what it's called, Treoskrien, it's called in Danish, and the, the, the Second Slesvig War, the 1864 War, and then we start to find the philately of it, and the postmarks, and the postal history, and then all of a sudden, I discover that I, or at least we, probably me more than she, it, although Beatrice, of course, is reading the letters, you know, and we've got this wonderful correspondence between a soldier and his wife, and she's at home in, in Unse, which is the, the birthplace of Hans Christian Andersen, and he's on the front line. Well, he's not, actually. He's a lucky man. He's not quite on the front line. He's looking after the officer's horses. But he's writing home to his wife, and his wife is running the shop, um, which, and they sell flour and they sell shoes and um, he's at the front line and she wants him to come home and he can't and, and Beata's reading these letters and Beata's really methodical so she takes the whole series of letters and she starts with the earliest date and she reads them all the way through she gets halfway through and she says she's pregnant <laughs> and I say how do you know and she says well it doesn't say it but I know she's pregnant so then we got involved in the genealogy of this thing, and um, so we look up the, the genealogical, genealogical sites in in, um, in in Denmark. And indeed, she was pregnant, and there was a child, and he still he didn't get home for the child, which is why later in the series of letters he's being told off for not coming home. <laughs> and, and and then next we go to Udense, and we find the house they lived in. 
So we get deeper and deeper into the history of the people and the history of the country and the postal history. And, and then what I thought might be a five-frame exhibit suddenly t- turns into 24 frames. Wow. <laughs> 24 to 1920. And, and I, I discover I know more about this subject than anybody since Palmerston, <laughs> who, was, who was the man who said only three people have ever understood the Schleswig-Holstein question. And one is mad, um, and the other is dead, and the last one is me, and I've forgotten the answer to the question. <laughs> and, you know, uh, but like all, like many things, I've kind of come to an end of that now. There's, I can't find any more of the postal history. So we've been casting around looking for other complicated places to collect, which is why I started on Lubeck. But Slavik taught me an awful lot about the combination of knowing your history, knowing your military and political history, and knowing your social history as being background for really understanding postal history. And it is one of the things that's very important to me is, is putting postal history in context. Hmm. Yeah, that must have been a fascinating exhibit. Do you still show that places, or have you uh, deconstructed it? or? It's... Part one has recently been sold. Mm. Part two is being sold on the 19th of April and a few days afterwards. Uh, yeah. So I've now, I've now got something else I'm looking at. Yeah. <laughs> that's, how it, um, that's how it goes. So if I, if I can direct our attention to um, virtual StampX for a moment, because you and the Royal were um, in charge, if you will, of getting the speakers for upcoming virtual StampX. And I know we connected with you last time talking about um, what your plans were. And uh, I just wanted to kind of check in and see if you had uh, speakers. And I know you had spoken actually at the last virtual StampX, but what, how that was going. Essentially, it's, it's, uh, I think I've I think I've completed the list of people who are volunteering to support StampX, mm-hmm. and uh, there's three elements to this. Um, the first is our own stand, our own booth, mm-hmm. uh, which will be similar to last time um, with different people and with more emphasis, I think, on publications. Because the royals, I mean, I think we're justifiably proud of our publications. And, uh, I don't think uh, they get enough um, enough credit. Some of them outside philately for the for the scholarly research that goes on. Mm. But that side of it is is pretty much in, in hand. Um, the second thing is that we're helping with the Spink um, Auditorium, um, and we've got four speakers there: um, Nicola Davis and uh, Frank Walton are going to be hosting. Um, a presentation from Steve and Vivienne Jarvis. Now, Steve's the philatelist. Vivienne is involved in um, a thing called the Art Society, the Society of Arts, I think, the Art Society. Um, and they're helping the Royal with transcribing the engraving books of Perkins Bacon. Hmm. So there are these, I think, 17 or 19 books which list pretty much everything Perkins Bacon engraved, and these were general printers. Um, and um, 
these are being not transcribed, but they're being keyword transcribed by volunteers from the art society. Um, and they're going to be made available for search, for free, for all collectors. Wow. Um, so, you know, and they engrave banknotes and they engrave stamps, they engrave all kinds of things, uh, illustrations for books. Um, they did Tapling's business card, uh, all, all kinds of things, uh, exhibition ephemera. So they're going to talk about that. But Mike Roberts is going to talk about the uh, the castles, the, the British high values from um, the 1950s through the 1970s, um, which I think he, he will be showing some magnificent material. Looking forward very much to that. Howard Hughes is going to do the history of the Maltese Cross mm. um, as a presentation. Howard is one of the experts on the Maltese Cross. Um, and then lastly, hmm, um, Richard Stock, our president, is going to talk about how to make an effective PowerPoint presentation. Because what, what, what we kind of wanted to do was to, because it's a British show, we wanted to give it a British feel, which is hence the castles and the Maltese crosses. Um, we wanted to show off some of the new stuff the Royal is trying to do in association with other bodies. Because I think that we do need to get out more as philatelists, and uh, this is one way of doing it. But we also wanted to provide some practical support and, you know, during this lockdown, PowerPoint and Zoom have really um, underpinned a lot of what's going on. And it's not going away. It's yeah. not going away. The, the Royal is going to keep a, a Zoom uh, presence going um, maybe a dozen times a year. And then lastly comes the, um, this, the Heinrich Köhler and Corinne Filler Collector's Lounge. Mm-hmm. And um, they are... Um, this is meant to be intensely practical. It's an advice shop. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how do I mount my collection? How best do I store and conserve my collection? How do I get in IT working to my advantage in, in, in philately? All kinds of how do I start a new subject and, and all of this stuff. So we've tried to go from the, the very practical to the very esoteric, from the very beginning to the very advanced and, and to cover all our base. And um, we'll see what happens. But like everything else, I've just put the list together and uh, got the volunteers. And yeah. it's the volunteers who are going to make it work, as is always the case in Philapoli. It, it so. sounds like an incredibly useful uh, collection of, of information that's going to be there and helping people from beginner to, to advanced. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's... And, and, of course, the royal stand is there to ask. Yeah. or try to answer any questions which, which we get. And we get a lot. Go see the exhibits this time. It's not a, not a big exhibition, but, you know, people put a hell of a lot of work into these exhibits, and I think we, we, mm-hmm. we, we owe it to the exhibitors to, to encourage them to, so, yeah. Are you exhibiting anything? No. No. Um, I've started this new subject. Not ready. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if I can, you... I wanted to talk a little bit about what you presented at the last virtual Stampix was, uh, which was the royal moving location, uh, relocating. And if you could talk a little bit about the uh, the decision to do that and, and what it what it uh, entailed and uh, how it's been, if you can. It's been very long. <laughs> it really has, I, because what we what we try to do. 
I mean, the Royal's been at 41 Devonshire Place since 1924. We signed the lease, 1925, we moved in. Mm-hmm. So it's almost a century at 41 Devonshire Place, and we tried really hard to stay there. And I was looking it up the other day that it was 2012-13 that we started looking at the, the planning constraints that we had. Mm-hmm. And, and I spent a lot of time talking to Westminster City Council, I spent, um, we spent a lot of time at 41 Devonshire Place talking about what um, we might do. Um, and, and I wasn't the first. We weren't the first. There had been at least two other efforts since 2000 to look at this question. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the, the, the first time the Royal talked about moving was closer to 2000 than 2010 even. Mm-hmm. Um, so we finally um, decided to appoint architects. We appointed architects. We agreed plans. We we were going to excavate underneath one of the buildings. We were going to put in an elevator, a lift, uh, to take us to. Because one of the big problems with Forty One Devonshire Place is that it it was well disability unfriendly. Is um, is an understatement. It was just not easy to get around if you were at all, um, if you had, had any problems with movement whatsoever. Um, so we put in a planning application, and in the last week of my presidency, we got the planning approval through. Um, but the government, Westminster City Council was not nice to us. They were not friendly to us. Um, we couldn't get an elevator to take us through the building. And then Okay, we, we decide we can live with what we've got at 41 Devonshire Place. We went out for a costing. Costing came back £6.2 million. Plus, plus um, any cost, we would have to be out of the building for two years. Plus, we'd have to pay rent out of the building. Plus, we'd have to pay storage out of the building. Plus, there was anything else we hadn't thought of. Uh, and the new any new furniture. So you're looking at this, it's going to be way over 7 million. And um, we had a council meeting and the, very, the overwhelming majority opinion was that we had to move. Uh, and we didn't have enough money because you can't go out looking for a building if you don't have cash in the bank. So we had to take the very uncomfortable decision to sell 41 Devonshire Place before we found a new place, um, which 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 I, I led that and, again, supported by a lot of people, and we did um, sell. Um, we, sold, um, we sold well. We sold at a good time in the marketplace. Uh, and we also sold with a two-year rent-free option to stay in the building. Hmm. Um, and then we found a new place, um, which is 15 at Church Lane. And again, uh, I, I personally reviewed 52 different places. <laughs> um, and a, a lot of my colleagues visited very many of them. Um, but 15 at Church Lane was, was by, by acclaim, the, the best place that we, we found. And so then we started on that process with planning consent. And I have to tell you, Westminster City Council had been so difficult and the City of London Planning Authority was so supportive that we really got a big welcome from the City of London. Mm-hmm. 
And so we got a planning consent and we got the builders and we did the work and then we had COVID. Right. Um, and on the 24th of February, which is now how many, three weeks ago, not even that, we finally got the practical completion certificate for the building. But, you know, we've done incredibly well. Our, our fundraisers and our members have been immensely generous. And we're coming out of this with half a million of debt. Um, okay. I can tell you in 1925, the estimate for the works was, I think, £10,500 and the price and the building and the purchase of 41 Devonshire Place. And the bill came out at something like 12900 So in relative terms, we've done better than they did in 1928, <laughs> um, which is when they finished paying it off. But we, we, we still have a debt, which is a worry. Um, but we've actually spent eight years on getting here. Yeah. And it's a phenomenal amount of time when you think about it. Yeah. But I just hope that in 10 years' time, people will look back and think it was a good move. Um, but that's really for posterity to decide. <laughs> I, I'm so looking forward to having no more to do with it. It's not true. It's just gone on for much longer than I expected. Mm -hmm. But it, but it's been quite a journey, you know. I mean, even the move. Um, we, we ran out of time. Um, we, we, it was just everything was taking longer. The building work was taking longer, as I think it often does. And, and so we had to go into temporary storage and people like Brian Trotter and others organized all of that and our staff and our staff have been great in doing this. Hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's taken, you know, it's, it, it, it takes a, a lot of people to do this. And the Royal has been blessed with so much help from so many people and so many, um, yeah, so many people have been positive about it. But by, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we are nearing the finishing line. But I tell you, COVID moved the finishing line half a dozen times. <laughs> I just don't want to see the finish, the, 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 finish, the finish sign move forward again. I don't think I can cope with that. I don't like my life back, please. <laughs> yeah, do you, do you guys have... Oh, go ahead, Charles. Hi, you. I was just going to ask if, if they had a... Uh, if the Royal had a tentative date on when they were opening the the new building and of course it's difficult with all the restrictions and everything like that 21st of june to the to the to the membership okay um i think it's the 21st it might be the 24th but it's that week i can't remember yeah. i need to look at a piece of paper but don't forget we we, we are open i mean the yeah. um Majesty the Queen opened the building. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> in, in November last year, in November 2019. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, we're expecting, if we're lucky with the vaccinations, mm -hmm. if we're lucky with variants, um, we're expecting to be open for members to attend in that third week of June. Hmm. subject to all of the usual caveats. <laughs> right. um, we're hoping staff will start to go back sooner, and we're hoping volunteers will start to go back sooner. But we really are in the hands of hmm. 
I mean, I'm not a religious person, but we are in the hands of God with this. We really don't know what's going to happen. Nobody expected this to last so long. Yeah. You know? Um, so, yeah, we have a time, we have a plan, we have a timetable, and uh, time will tell. Chris, my last question for you is, is um, I guess not even so much of a question, is a, a, a open uh, topic of conversation. You've thought much... I, I think compared to a lot of people in this hobby, you've thought longer term and more internationally than a lot of people. Um, you've, I, I, again, that, that, that's at least my impression of you is that you're, you're uh, really looking at things in a, a wider perspective. A lot of people get locked into their collecting area or their uh, local society or, or their area of interest. Can you talk a little bit about what you think the role of international philately will be moving forward? Because the Royal is an organization that for much of its history catered to, to British members, I would say. And now the Royal is thinking bigger. And and uh, just as things trend internationally in the hobby, what do you think that'll do for philately uh, long term? Well, the Royal has had more than half its membership from overseas since 1974. Um, I think the Royal has always looked outwards. Um, although it's tended to look narrowly outwards, and now it's looking more widely. I think you've got to start with where's philately going, and I, I think our hobby, there's that word again, has a strong future. I think there are always going to be collectors. You can see up on the shelf behind me maybe that I collect pottery. Plenty of people collect pottery. Nobody's worried that it's going out of fashion. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, people have collected coins for, well, millennia, I suspect. Mm -hmm. so, so our hobby is in good shape. Um, I think international philately is simply an extension of national philately. Well, one of the things that we've seen in the last, and it's not just the last year with, with the coronavirus and Zoom, but international exhibitions have been quite popular. Um, a lot of people ally international travel with international philately. Um, authors, um, books are sold all over the world. Good, good philatelic material sells all over the world. So literature and material already have a world audience. Um, eBay and all of its subsidiaries has given us a, a world market. All of the major auction houses now have a completely international clientele. They may be biased according to the country in which they're based, but the clientele is international. Um, and the major clubs and societies, especially the specialist societies, also have an international uh, membership. So, and, and the Royal will continue to, to have an international membership. So that's where we are. We are in an international world, whether we like it or not. Zoom has brought us together. Mm. In fact, it's going to be much easier to be collectors in different places uh, because of what we've got in the way of, of uh, technology. So we have a platform, and we have a world of collectors, and we have a world of support and dealers and literature and everything else. And it's really up to us what we make of it. Um, and, you know, that's down to people like yourselves. You're a heck of a lot younger than me. And I believe that in 50 years' time, we will still have philately, and it will be international, whether we like it or not. 
Um, and we have really to make sure that we keep things going and going well. And the, the, the part of it that bothers me, and I mentioned it earlier, is the kind of wall we have around philately. Um, I think that a lot of our writers write as well as many academics. A lot of our researchers research as well as many academics. Yet philately doesn't really have a place in the wider world of, of academic research, of historical study. Um, and I, I think the challenge really is not international philately. The challenge is actually getting philately as a more respected element of uh, human endeavour, research, and investigation into our own history. Uh, so I, there's a long way for us to go, but you know we, there are a lot of roads we can go down. But the one thing we can be certain is that they're going to lead all. They're all going to lead away from home. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really very positive. Um, but we've got to get out more. We've got to talk up what we do more, and we've got to get into a wider world. Yeah. And, not be quite such a narrowly orientated. The, the man with the deer stalker hat and the magnifying glass that we see in, in advertisements, even today, um, is the guy we've got to get rid of. And we've, we've got to be a lot more outward looking. Um, and uh, I think we've got a fine future. I'm hugely positive about Philately, and I am so grateful for it in my life. Yeah. Yeah, that's a terrific point. It, I, I didn't ha I didn't quite get a chance to read the entire article yet, but I had seen something in the uh, Guardian uh, last week. Was it? I, I don't know if either of you saw this, but they had um, scientists had had figured out a way to read a folded letter from the 1700s without actually unfolding the letter, and I think it's that kind of. Uh, direction that that breaks the the barriers between so many yeah. people I saw sharing this who weren't philatelists. It, it was all just, over Twitter. Yeah, they yeah. were super was, interested was, in it. Was that in respect of a particular archive, or was that just in general terms? I think it was just in in general terms. I I, I only got to read the first two paragraphs before I had to do something else, but it was. Yeah, I mean that's really. I mean, I think technology. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Forensic technology like that is also a huge help to us because, unfortunately, unfortunately, there are a lot of forgeries around, particularly in postal history these days. But <clears throat> there's a, there's, that's really interesting because there's an, I didn't see that in the Guardian. No, um, there's an archive in the UK called the Prize Court Archive, which has thousands, uh, which is a queue at the Public Record Office. And that's got thousands, many, many thousands, tens of thousands of folded letters from the 17th century onwards. Mm -hmm. Even on mailbags, it's got all kinds of stuff. Seized by the they had seized by the British Navy on the high seas, and brought back to uh, the UK as prizes. Um, no, this had not attracted any philatelic study until. Well, I don't think it still has, really. Um, it's being examined by um, a group of historians based in Oldenburg, Germany, at present. Uh, I find that, at the same time, absolutely fascinating and absolutely terrifying, because <laughs> here we have a huge archive 
of postal material, postal history, which philatelists have never, ever looked at on our own doorstep. Um, and then, then we've got a group of people who are historians who don't even know that philatelists exist. Hmm. And now we've got this technology which allows us to look inside the letter. I mean, you know, the prosecution rests. Surely the three of us should be talking to each other. <laughs> and, and, you know, you kind of give me the opportunity to make my point. Mm -hmm. That things, there are things going on in the world that really ought to involve philatelists. And yet, too often it doesn't. Yeah. yeah. And maybe, we, maybe we are finally opening up. Yeah, that's a, an incredible, important point is we, yeah, we should be working together. And I think crossing that, that boundary, that barrier is, is going to be what, what drives us forward and, and, get, and gets more awareness for the hobby and for the people in it and the fantastic, amazing things they're doing. Yeah, there's, there's probably some fancy term for it, interdisciplinary studies or something. <laughs> but we need to get more interdisciplinary. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, long way to go. It really is, and it, but it's exciting. So mm -hmm. I just hope I'm, I hope I'm around to see some more of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Chris, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for for uh, you know when we spoke to you regarding StampX, we Michael and I both really wanted to uh, have you on for the the full episode that that you deserve, and we've been looking forward to this one. So thank you for yeah. for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. You. I'm very grateful. Very very grateful indeed. Thanks, guys. Thank yeah, you no, very thank much. You. Thank you. This has been a, a pleasure. Lovely. Take care. You too. Thank you, Chris. Bye. We've talked to Chris three times now, and and I still haven't gotten the opportunity to meet him in person. He just seems like such a genuinely... I can tell you, Chris is even nice. As nice as he was during this, he's even nicer in person than he yeah. comes across on Zoom. Chris is uh, Chris is just awesome. I, I uh, feel honored to have become friends with him over the years. I can't wait for you to, to meet him. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I think that was one of the best in-depth yeah. conversations we've had about mm -hmm. the state of philately and the future of philately. And I love hearing about his, his, his personal collecting. And, and again, uh, his, his wife is, is just as accomplished as he is. But, um, but, but I, to talk about I, big picture stuff, too, I think is yeah. really interesting. I, I was going to say, I, I don't think we've done this before, but I'd like to actually compliment you on that final question you asked about the role of international philately, because that was one of the... You never complimented me on a question? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I've never asked a, a question worthy of compliment? <laughs> no, 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 no. Neither of us have have, uh, <laughs> have commented on the... Um... Charles, I just want to thank you for carrying your own weight for once. <laughs> no, but but neither one of us That's have kind of acknowledged the... Uh, a, a we question. don't acknowledge <laughs> each other? I don't know where you're going with this, man. <laughs> Uh, no, it was a fantastic question because the answer was the answer. I, that, that was not I, like I was expecting. A lot of people have like canned answers where it's like, yeah. oh, your stamp collecting is this and that." Mm -hmm. And and what Chris said, I think, is just he, fascinating. He un unpacked a very serious topic in a very, again, like you said, down to earth. He looked at it logistically. He was excited. He's excited for the future of the hobby, and he thinks that that it holds some some significant value going forward in the future and and the things he said really i felt they rung true and and they absolutely you know it was a um it was eye-opening while relieving at the same time he said we got a lot of work to do but it's but it's positive things are looking good absolutely absolutely no i i really enjoyed this conversation i think this is uh this is a a, a a chat well worth listening to, but yeah. if somebody hears me say that, they've already listened to it. 
<laughs> so that doesn't really do anyone any good. No. But if you've made it this far, rest assured what you heard was worth listening to. <laughs> okay. Uh, that should have gone at the beginning of the episode. Yeah. Uh, it's like there's an episode of The Simpsons where uh, there's a it's a treehouse of horror. Okay. There's like a really violent, itchy and scratchy or something. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, there's a disclaimer that says the program you just watched may have been unsuitable for young viewers. <laughs> <laughs> and I always thought that was a, a, a really funny. I, that's like us mm-hmm. um, in a way. So <laughs> with that, Michael, yeah. uh, people can can find us as always at flatlypodcast.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, flatlypodcast at gmail.com we have a couple mm-hmm. of emails that we want to read and we're going to save those for the next episode yep. um, so we're going to be sharing more reader mail if you want your email to be read aloud by us as if that's something that people <laughs> would want uh, you can send us an email and we'll read it uh, you can yeah. send us a tweet and we'll read it um, mm-hmm. and uh, and yeah we're, we're on Google Podcasts Spotify Podcasts, Apple Podcasts Um Everywhere. We're, everywhere. we're we're everywhere. We got a pod, we got an email. Flatlypodcast at gmail dot com. Yeah, we're we're on YouTube. Um we're on the com. But but listen, we've we've got a lot of exciting interviews coming up. I'm really looking hey, forward to so we have to, a lot right now. We, we um got, we have we have more interviews now than there are weeks. Days, yeah. Days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um we're talking to uh I mean, I guess we can rattle off a couple of them. We're talking to yeah, Lawrence Haber, who's the president of the Collectors Club in New York. Yeah. Uh, we're talking to Tobias Fulmans, who's one of my colleagues over in Germany, who is uh, an expert with the BPP. He expertizes mm-hmm. uh, quite a few different areas, and uh, he's one of my best friends on the planet, so I'm really excited to talk to him. Um, we've got a lot of cool stuff coming up. Yeah, yeah, and I'm really looking forward to it. We is. This is gonna be good. This is gonna be a good month. It's gonna be good. That's a good way. To, that's a good way of putting it, man. I agree. It's gonna be good. <laughs> tune in. Um, tune, uh, tune in because it's gonna be good. Um, no, as always, this is this is so much fun, Michael. This is the highlight of my week, and uh, and let's do it again real soon. Absolutely. Awesome. I'll talk to you real soon. Yeah. Talk to you later. <laughs>